You are listening to the Actor Aesthetic Podcast, episode 89, featuring special guest Marshall W. Mabry IV. Let's get started. What's up, everyone? This is Maggie Barra, and welcome to another episode of the Actor Aesthetic Podcast, where I take you behind the scenes of the theater industry. The Actor Aesthetic Podcast is produced every single week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at actoraesthetic.com slash podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Actor Aesthetic, or join our Facebook group, the newly named Actor Aesthetic Alliance. All links are in the show notes. Let's get on to the show. When it comes to racism in the theater industry, we've learned that it doesn't just exist solely on Broadway. It is everywhere. On national tours, at regional theaters, within reputable college theater programs, inside community theaters, at high schools, in audition rooms, on social media, everywhere. In continuation of the Black Lives Matter movement and current events, Actors of color are using social media to share stories of racism in the theater industry. These stories are sickening to the core. They are raw with emotion, with years of pent-up frustrations and oppression. I applaud artists of color in their bravery, but frankly, these things shouldn't even be happening in the first place. We shouldn't expect artists of color to come out about these experiences for things to finally change. I myself am recognizing how oblivious I was to this, so I'm listening, I'm learning, and I will continue to amplify voices of color. Today's episode features the incomparable Marshall Mabry. If you don't already know who he is and you're not already familiar with his work, then you better hop on board now because he is going to be a star. Marshall W. Mabry IV is an activist, playwright, and performer from Atlanta, Georgia. He's an incoming freshman majoring in musical theater at the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley. Marshall strives to leave every room brighter than he found it, especially for the young artists of color coming after him. If you want to learn more about Marshall, I've linked some of his credits in the show notes, including his TED Talk, as well as his social media accounts and websites. In this episode, you will hear from Marshall about his thoughts on racial stereotypes in the theater, Shakespeare for Black actors, colorblind versus color-conscious casting, and more. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy our chat. We are so honored to have you on the podcast this week, so thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, you grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. So how did you initially get involved in theater? Um, theater is a little weird for me. Okay. Um, my father is a bishop and I grew up singing in the church. And that was kind of like my route for a little bit. And we did this show called Angels. Technically my first musical, but we're not going to count her. <laughs> um, and I played the angel Gabriel, even though I was a terrible child. And um, I was like, ooh, y'all gonna clap for me? I love it here. And um, 
that was just like kind of my intro. And, you know, I went to school and they had like, we're doing like our community theater production of like Mulan. And I was like, oh, I'm black. I'm funny. I'm going to be Mushu. I was like, that's it. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I, I, I remember I walked into this room. I prepared Mushu like down. Like I had options, had acting choices, memorized wow. lines and everything. And I walked in and I, had, I, had, I still wear these sneakers. I call them my no place like homes. They are these like all red Jordans. They look, I call them my kinky boots too. That's the alternate title. But these all red Jordans, there's a little like a suede moment. They're beautiful, stunning shoes. Oh my shoes. gosh. And I walked in and I had these khakis on, a white shirt, this custom made bow tie. My thing was bow ties. I was like a glee kid. And I was like, I just knew How I was old playing. How were you when this, when this was happening? I was like 13. <laughs> I just like, I don't know why. I don't know what in me was like, hey, large black man, you are now Darren Chris. You have to be Blaine. But that was like my, that was like who I was. And I came in with this custom-made khaki, white, and red bow tie. And I was like, boom, Mushu is here. And she let me do it. And then she looked at me and she went, can you sing I'll Make a Man Out of You? And I said, <laughs> you want me to sing who? Mind you, the best song in the show. Okay. Oh, the best by, song by in far. The show. Donny Osmond sings for the blood in that song. And no one appreciates it. Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, totally. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and they cast me a shang and wow. that that's that's where i started hashtag blank you auditioned for colleges last year well i guess yeah. this past semester mm-hmm. i guess you know just a couple of months ago what went into your decision for auditioning for colleges did you know that you always wanted to go to college <laughs> for this I'm no I, I started my training with the uh two-time grammy winning group arrested development and they were training me for like tv film music if I wanted to go into it. I was like, okay, cool. And they had this agent come through and she saw me and she was like, he's not ready yet. She came back a couple months later and she saw me again. And she was like, we want to take him to New York. So they took me to New York for the showcase. And listen, <laughs> I don't know how, but like I sang, I, I remember this. I sang, if I loved you in carousel. Okay. And they were like, we're going to do, okay, one, I, I can't sing with Jay. I fake it. I know how to fake it really well. <laughs> there are few people that can walk into a room and go, yeah, let's sing it. And like, I, when I say I didn't know what a legit sound was at yeah. all, all I knew was Joshua Henry was doing it. So I wanted to do it too. Mm-hmm. And Ben took 30 minutes and I was sitting there spinning. And I said, oh, is that vibrato? Is that the fullness of my voice? Well, hello there. It's nice to meet you. Um, but like I sang If I Loved You, that was all I sang. I was mm-hmm. like, I've got it now. This is who I am. I'm an artist. <laughs> and I sang If I Loved You. And then I did the, the first scene Jeannie does in, the, in Aladdin on Broadway. Mm-hmm. When my friends had been in for the role, he sent me the callback size. And he was like, prepare now. And I was like, Smart. bet. I was Smart. like, baby Jeannie season. That's what we're doing. And apparently, it was, we were supposed to do like, you know, those monologues we take from like the books yeah. that don't have flays attached yeah. to them. And they give them to you when you're 12 years old. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to be in the Bridge Terabithia the musical. <laughs> like when you're like there they were supposed to do one of those monologues okay you know i i performed and then we were supposed to get calls from agents and managers and all these people right nothing mm-hmm. radio silence and like because people you know people hype you up at that point i was like i you know done carnegie hall i'd done like the music island making at carnegie hall so i was like mm. 
I got credit. I was like, I know what I'm doing. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm 15. I got a little, you know, a little mustache. I was like, I know what I'm doing. I was like, this industry isn't ready for this baby Keenan Thompson that's about to come at them. And I didn't hear anything. And I woke up the next day and 10 people wanted to see me. So I was like, oh, okay. Wow. So before even auditioning, I already had a manager and an agent for uh for colleges so i was like do i want to do this and i ended up in a, a college prep class taught by matthew scott at broadway dreams atlanta this summer well last summer and <laughs> i wasn't looking at colleges and he was like yeah you know i went to carnegie mellon and i was like oh i said oh i like the sound of that uh-huh. and he goes yeah you know I, you know, I did Ragtime in 2005 with, you know, this cast and it was Quentin O'Darrington and me. And then he goes, you know, this one of, one of our ladies in the cast, Caitlin Hawkins, she started this incredible program. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, tell me more. Shout out to Caitlin. Shout out to K-Hop. <laughs> and I was like, tell me more about this Caitlin woman. <laughs> and he started telling me about Texas State. And I was like, oh, hmm. say less. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, okay, bet. And I decided literally in June wow. before my senior year that I would be auditioning. And I spent that entire summer finding material. I trained at a company called Orbit Arts Academy. Yeah. So we we were used to training for this. And you know, I had friends go through the college audition process the year before. So it was always yeah. around, but it wasn't something for me yeah. um, until that June. But I had been you know how we all have like those people that those people we saw on stage first and we were like, oh, I can do this. Yep. That person for me was James Monroe Iglehart. Mm. And I've gotten, I mean, I, I saw him do friend like me and I was like, wait a minute. I was like, I'm big, you big. <laughs> I'm black, you black. Like I remember I saw him in Hamilton and like wow. nothing sad happened. Nothing sad happened. Literally he came out for the opening number and I was like, <laughs> I was like, Marshall, don't cry. Don't you dare cry. Don't you dare cry. And I was sitting there and the Richard Rogers just bawling. The man came out in, the, in, his, in his, you know, the, the parchment outfit. And I was yeah, like, yeah. oh my God, man. I was like, you're showing me the way. And like, I'd been able to work with James a couple of times by then. And James was like, because oh, wow. I, I was, I knew I wanted to do this. So I was like, how did you find material? And he gave me a list of material. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, look at the people that inspire you. Look at the people that inspired them, see what they do in cabarets. And I was like, okay, cool. So I'd already started finding my material for it. So for me, going into college auditions, I knew that there was one song that I had that nobody else was going to do. (laughs) Nobody else was. So my my like superpower song is what I call it. Yes. The Oogie Boogie song from the Nightmare Before Christmas. It's super, it's, it's a deep cut. Like, nobody's like, oh, yeah, Ken Page, that guy from Cats and, like, Ain't Misbehaving. No, nobody, if I said no Ken one. Page this yeah, yeah, yeah. audition season, the only people that knew him were the auditioners that worked with him. Yeah. So it was like, okay, cool. And it's, it's Audrey too. it's Jeannie, it's oh Memphis, and it, it, it takes all these Cab Calloway influences and puts in one song. And nobody else is doing. I was like, okay, bet I have that song. Now I just need to fill it, figure out how to build something around it. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was always preparing material. Okay. Now it was just you need to prepare this now. Yep. And not wait till you sitting in the city homeless. 
trying to book Hamilton. <laughs> I want to bring this up because I I saw that you posted this. Was this the other day, like two days ago, maybe when um, Aisha Jackson started the theater in color I love her. movement? I love her so much. I, absolutely incredible. And your post was really powerful. I've been learning a lot from from those posts, specifically though from yours, because you know you audition for what did you say, 25 schools and you got into 19 of them, Mm -hmm. which in itself is incredible because as someone who's been through the college audition process, it's insane. It's (laughs) It's It's like unlike anything we've ever experienced. And you also got, I think you said roughly a million dollars in scholarships, Mm -hmm. but you mentioned that you were met with comments from your white peers, basically Mm -hmm. saying that you've only got into those schools because you're black. Mm-hmm. Or you only got in to fill a diversity quota, which I, I, I'm like floored by that thought. How have those blatantly racist comments affected you? For me, it's nothing new. Yeah. Um, I think this year, when I, I was prepared, yeah. I knew it was coming because I had mentors warn me it was coming. Wow. People like James were like, no, this is what, this is what the industry is. Um, and I, I was blessed to have artists of color that have big enough platforms go, hey, let me, like, let me tell you how this really is. Because, I mean, I grew up in Atlanta. The church, um, my, my, my home church, was where Dr. King would, like, go to strategize about marches and all these things so like it's nothing new to me the concept of race is nothing new to me um but it was this audition season was a reminder that that hamilton didn't just clear up everything um like everyone says It, it was one of those things for me where it was like it's uh, we love you as long as you aren't doing better than us type thing. Because for, for me, you know, I was auditioning with this group of students and it was me and my best friend. He's um, half Filipino. And we were like the two, we, like we met each other. We were two ethnic kids. I was like, I met him and I was like, hey, we were in this, you know, dance studio. I looked at him. I was like, you're not completely white. We're best friends. And we bonded over Ramin Karamloo and Gilmore Girls. I was just like, where do you lead? Like, yeah. And he picked up right after me. And I was like, Yes. <laughs> I was like, I found my man. Uh-huh. And, you know, we, we went into this audition season and we were like, okay, we're kids of color. We know that we're not in the same financial situation as everyone else is, really. Mm-hmm. We, there was no way without the scholarships that we received that we would be going to school right now. So mm-hmm. we knew that we had to work 10 times as hard as anybody else that was going to be auditioning with us. So for me, I was prepared for it to come. I was also prepared to not get into school if that was, you know, because some of these kids had been performing since they were like nine. And, you know, we were auditioning with these kids who were in Matilda and the Lion King. And, you know, there's always that one kid that was like, oh yes, I was on Broadway at nine. (laughs) And we're like, all right, (laughs) you did like four shows a week, calm down. Um, But like, there's always that kid that's that's like, oh no, this is why I'm better than you. I don't know why they're Harvey Patterson. Um, so for me, it was, it was still eye-opening, though, because we, we say theater is this progressive industry. 
But then my friends are like, oh, but like, you got in because you're black. And I was like, How do you even respond to that? I mean, it, I mean, because I was I was very strategic and meticulous in the way I chose material, yeah, and the way I chose to highlight my culture, and the in the way I chose to to display myself. Because at the same time, it's just like auditioning for professional gigs. I've been auditioning professionally before I was auditioning for schools, so yeah. I already really knew what I was supposed to be doing. I knew how to showcase myself in the best possible way. So, you know, when we're in this college prep class and I see your package and I'm like, there's something, there's something more there. Why aren't you finding something for that? It's like, no, I, I knew how to craft what I was doing. I knew how to choose this Shakespeare as opposed to that one. I knew how to choose this August Wilson piece over some, you know, other playwright that's not going to serve my culture because I need to show if I'm going to go into this room as an artist of color that I can do both. Yep. Because as if you can be as versatile as possible, you're a prize. Mm -hmm. Like schools are going, schools are going to jump at you and they will fight dirty. (laughs) They will fight dirty. (laughs) They, I, they will, I, I don't know how many times I can say they will fight dirty, but they really will. If they see that you are versatile and that you are marketable and that you can be somebody that will look good on their alumni page, they will fight for you. So I knew how to strategically and like strategically choose what I was doing from the get go. Yeah. So I was like, if we're going to do this, I'm playing the game the way I was taught to play the game by these now Tony winners and, you know, these people that are the first black blank, the first black this, you know, on uh, Alphabet, all these people that I, I, I've been um, blessed to have in my life. They, they taught me how to play this game. One of my big brothers, is the, he was the uh, third black phantom. He was the phantom on tour. And he was like, listen, it's a game. He understudied Joshua Henry in uh, Carousel. He was like, you have to know how to market yourself and how to show what you can do in that room in those 32 bars. And people, people are going to be people. I mean, it, it is what it is. There's always going to be somebody that has something to say. People, people talk about these Tony winners like they are nothing. I've heard people slander Audra McDonald like she doesn't have six Tonys. And I'm like, I- hello? <laughs> hello? Hello? <laughs> She's a goddess. What are you doing? <laughs> so like, people are going to talk regardless. Yeah. So for me, it was how do I keep my head up, and also how do I, how do I do this for something bigger than me? I operate as a servant. That's that's what I believe my 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 purpose is in life is to serve. So it had to be bigger than me, or I was gonna let them get in my head. So I I, I read Leslie Odom Jr.'s uh, Failing Up, and I took all these quotes that I highlighted and I I, I put them around my room. And I said, and I'm a spiritual person, so I prayed. And I said, okay, how can I make this bigger than me? And mm-hmm. a teacher told me, she said, your goal in these auditions is to leave every room brighter than you found it. It doesn't matter if you get in. It doesn't matter. But if I can be the one person that comes in and makes you laugh after you done heard 3,000 girls sing with you, or it's sing first date, <laughs> or sing for the first time in forever, if I can just be something different to make you smile and to bring a little joy and to bring a little peace into your day, then I'm doing what I, what, what I did. Like that, yeah. that was my only goal. And if I left the room and did that, cool. I don't need to get new school. 
I'm operating in my purpose. So that was, because I mean, people are gonna talk. It is what it is, they're always gonna talk. You can be on Broadway. There are people who hate Viola Davis. She has Tonys, Oscars, Emmys, Golden Globes. She's got it all. And there are people yeah. who hate her performances. It is what it is. I did some research into this because to be honest, I'm, I, I am learning a lot uh, these past few weeks. And I, I did some research into why people talk about diversity quotas, what that means. So when people say diversity quotas, what they mean is racial quotas in this instance. I found that the Supreme Court ruled in 1978 that racial quotas are unconstitutional and that, however, affirmative action, which we're starting to hear a little bit more, may be constitutional if race is considered as one of the many admission factors and used to remedy past findings of discrimination and to promote diversity. So my question to you is in the college audition setting, what do you think about affirmative action? Is it helpful for people of color? Is it hurtful? What are your thoughts on that? It's a tough one. Yeah. Because walking in, I knew that one, I made sure that I had a connection with most of the black people going into this musical theater field. Mm -hmm because community is important to me. So I wanted to know that I had a group of people that would have my back and a group of people that I know I would have their back. So for us, I knew that we would be this sort of, this sort of, you know, like commodity, this, this hot button option, because we are, where, where you look at Broadway right now and what's making money, it doesn't make money if there are no faces of color a part of the show. If it's not a Hamilton, after the 2016 Broadway season, I want to say it was, when it was Hamilton, when it was Waitress, when it was Shuffle Along, the greatest show that never got any of what it deserved, it's the color. That year was the, I want to say to this day, it's still the only year where most of the recipients were people of color. Mm -hmm. After they saw that, schools knew they had to make a change. Yep. They just did. And they knew that they're not going to have that alumni page they need if they don't have students of color who can exist in these shows. If you don't have, you know, some kid that can go in and play Kristoff, if you don't have some kid that can leave and play Genie or Hercules Mulligan or the kid that can, you know, sing I'm Here every day, all day, eight shows a week. They knew that they, these programs wouldn't be able to get the same funding. They wouldn't be able to have the same clout in the musical theater world. Or like they knew there was something about kids of color that was changing, especially because Miss Saigon was the year after it. It was something yeah. and heights was so big and on your feet was so big. And there was there was a literal changing in the theatrical culture that they had to catch up with. So I knew for students of color, and that there's also a thing where you don't look like everyone else. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many rooms I went into where everyone was like blonde and blue-eyed, and I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, um. Ooh, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm, I'm in an R&H show. It was just, I was like, everybody. It was like a sea of vanilla Oreos and then oh, me. Oh, no. Okay. Oh. And you enter a lot of those rooms as an artist of color. And I've been, I mean, Aisha Jackson talked about it. Like, when you walk in a Frozen and there's a couple of people and then people start, knit. they literally listed out the names of every person of color in Frozen and were like, why are they in this show? That's like it happens so 
affirmative action in theater, I think they have, it has, these musical theater programs have to catch up to the industry. Because at the end of the day, Broadway, and Broadway's getting called out for it. (laughs) Broadway's been diverse on the stage and nowhere else, which is the issue. But the way we're moving toward with forward with people like Adam Hindman, who is in Hades Town, but he's also producing shows like The Inheritance on Broadway. Mm-hmm. When you have people like E. Clayton Cornelius, who was in A Chorus Line, who was in Wonderland, who was in Ain't Too Proud, and is now, you know, producing Hades Town, is producing a show that he's in, is producing Carolina Change. When there are people that are moving and shifting the theater culture, you have to move with it where you get left behind and then you're just that old program that this one tenor that was really great in 2002 went to, but now he's not working. (laughs) So, you know, you have to catch up with it. And I think um, for some schools, it's about being available because theater is, is not made to be available for people of color or people that just don't have the funds. It's not made available at all. For me, I got lucky and most of the only college audition I didn't have to travel hundreds of miles for was my Boko audition. They auditioned in Atlanta. Wow. Some schools, they know to audition in Atlanta, to audition in Miami, to audition in New York, where you know these people are, where you know these groups of color are, because there are kids that have so much to offer, but don't have the resource, the same resources to go and spend $3,000 to go fly up and do some program with Gavin Creel or with Betsy Wolf. Not everybody has the same access to money like that. So for, for programs to make themselves available, I think it's incredible. And it's something that's, it's necessary for this art form to survive. If you feel comfortable sharing have you ever had a situation where you were racially stereotyped in an audition, whether it be in the college audition setting or in a professional audition? Yes. That's a tough thing. Yeah. Because like I said, you have to be able to do both. People want you to walk into the room and they need to see that while you can do this material that was not written for you, that you can also do the stuff that was written for you. I've been in auditions and I came in with, you know, my best, my best Shakespeare piece. Yeah. My best piece written by whoever the hottest white playwright is in New York right now. And they were like, okay, do you have anything more urban? And they're like, can you, can you dirty up your language a little bit? And I'm like, "Mm, okay. I see what you're getting at. And for some people, it's a no. It's, I'm good. Thank you. Have a nice day. But other people, you know what they're going to ask for. So you have that prepared because at the end of the day, everybody has to eat. Mm-hmm. So I, I've, I've been asked to do both. And I made sure for me, I, I didn't want to go into the room and to feel like I had to, to, to perform this minstrel show and in, in which I had to throw on this blackface and go, well, hey, how you doing? Oh, thank you so much for all these opportunities. I am so thankful for it. Like, I, I didn't want to have to go into a room and have to feel like I was, you know, shucking and jiving for approval. I didn't want to feel like I had to, to, to mock myself or my culture or these people that I love so dearly just for approval or just for a job. Because at the end of the day, as an artist, you have to live with yourself after the curtain closes. 
you have to be able to live with yourself after you know the audience leaves and you're in your dressing room looking at yourself in the mirror so i i have been in those instances and there have been times where i was like i'm good but there were times where i was like i'm in a contract Hmm. i'm in a contract and you have connections to this industry that i that I want to be in so badly to show another little brown boy that his voice matters. So in this moment, I, I have to do it, you know? There, there are moments where you, and then you, you know, you look at Broadway, and you're like, for me, like, Jeannie was that role that awakened me. Jeannie, for me, is joy. I, I try to operate in joy and what he does in Friend Like Me in 10 minutes on stage, sitting there, just high energy. He is joy. He is bright on that stage. And you know, that was like the big thing for me. But then at the same time, you sit back and you go, damn, Jeannie's a magical slave. Yeah. <laughs> All Jeannie wants is to be free at the end of the day. I was, I was watching the show and I said, pause. Aladdin just asked Jeannie, what does he want? He said to be free. Now let that sit. And it's like, some of these roles are doing so much good. But at the same time, they're playing into the exact same things that have been holding these groups of people back for centuries. And it's one of those things where, like, some people can't afford not to take the job. Audra doesn't have to take every, you know, maid or, you know, underpaid servant in a show because she's got six Tonys. She'll work. She'll live. But that one kid that's fresh out of this undergraduate program that nobody knows about is Broadway. Mm. So you, you, know, you have to take it at that point, or, or you feel as if you have to take it. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky, tricky thing where you have, to, you have to know why you're doing it. But yeah, I've, I've had those experiences. Let's talk about Shakespeare, because I'm going to link to your TED Talk in the podcast show notes if anyone has not already watched it, but your TED Talk was titled The Intersectionality of Black Boys and Shakespeare, and you shared in that talk how Shakespeare's stories deal with universal themes and how important it is to have diverse voices telling them. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So. This came about for me because I saw, I saw two things. Okay. I was blessed enough to, to be a part of the Alliance Theater's uh, Teen Ensemble program. And I got to go to the TCG conference in St. Louis that year. And I'm sitting there with these teens from Berkeley Rep. And we went to Shakespeare in the Park and we saw Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo was black. And I was like, yo. I was like, are y'all not clocking this? I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. In my head, Shakespeare, he always wrote these men to look like Justin Timberlake and Orlando Bloom. <laughs> I was like, so what, what is this chocolate man doing? And then I ended up adapting Midsummer Night Dream twice. Oh, oh and then I saw uh, Papa S.U. Doe's. Hamlet, I want to say it was 2016, um, there's, a, there's a video of him doing To Be or Not To Be. Um, there's Royal Shakespeare Company's uh, production of it. And I was like, yo. 
what like what am i missing why 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 isn't this bigger for me um and i started to research these prolific names that we know of actors in the black community your james earl joneses your viola davis your herschel Ali's, your Brian Tyree Henry, Sterling K. Browns, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, Denzel Washington, all these people, they've all been classically trained, which means they've all worked in some point in Shakespeare. There are pictures of Denzel and Merchant of Venice. There are pictures, there's, there's an entire video of a three-hour production of James Earl Jones' King Lear, and I was like, nobody told me, but why don't I feel like I can. And, and I talked about it in the TED Talk about some of the instances where I, I was literally told that this was not for me. So intersectionality came about when I, um, I started writing about it. I'm a writer. So I did the thing. And I, I, just, I just started writing and I was, I was like, these are human concepts. Hamilton's, uh, Hamilton, help. Hamlet's <laughs> Yay, Hamlet. <laughs> Ham, yay, Hamlet. <laughs> Hamlet's feelings of, of pure anger and, and his interruption of his mourning for his father by this marriage between his uncle and his mother, like, that's something real that I can find in myself to relate to. And I was like, we're, we're, not, we're not that different. The, Hamlet talking about the constant battle of whether whether life is to be lived or not i felt that way since february 26 2012 when trayvon martin was killed i was like yeah i can live this life but there will always be a target on my back because i look a certain way so why for what so so i can sit here and, and deal with the constant turmoil and, and the constant struggle, struggles to be enough, struggles to be equal, struggles to be seen as a human being instead of a hashtag, instead of mm-hmm. this, this, this scary black men that people paint most of us as, how can I be more than that? To see Hamlet dealing with the exact same thing for me, I was like, dog, mm-hmm. there, there is a failure to educate and to really inform kids that Shakespeare is just like any other story. It's just like any other story. The only difference is the language is a little fancy. <laughs> the language is fancy, but so is I'm past patiently waiting. You know, the, the, the same things that they do in Hamilton, the same things that they're doing in R&H. Yeah. I never walk around my house like, oh, what a beautiful <laughs> moon. I've never once in my life been like, wow, the hills are alive. I'm gonna sing a song about it. <laughs> That's not something we naturally do. <laughs> Verse and prose is not something you naturally do. My mother's never been like, son, doth thou seek refreshment? No, you just ask me if I'm thirsty. <laughs> like, Shakespeare was making up words in his time. Uh-huh. So it's like, for me, for the TED Talk, I-, I-, I wanted to serve young Black men, young Black artists, young people of color, young artists in general, and to inform them that this is a space that is open to them. And that not only is it a space that is open to them, but when their skin color is added to the story, it affects the whole thing. And it adds more layers than it had before. Mm. Me walking onto stage as a black man playing Iago, 
adds way more layers than a James Franco playing Iago. Because then it's just racist, right? Then it's, oh, white guy, he's a black guy, and it's like, that, like that's, that's the big thing. If it's two black men playing Iago and Othello, there's issues of self-hate. There's issues of jealousy. There is, there, there's, why, why, why does Iago hate him? Why does he hate the more specifically? Because he would be seen as the exact same. So what makes him think that he's better than him in some way? What, what is that, that, that there's something juicier when it comes to digging into these characters? Yeah. So I wanted these kids to understand that not only, do, not only is this a space that is open to you, but it is a story that you can enrich by simply existing within. What are your thoughts on colorblind slash color conscious casting? One of my first trips to New York, I got to see Joshua Henry in Carousel. I couldn't afford it, but a $40 ticket for the back of the house. Mm-hmm. This usher sent from God said, no, go to this seat. They wrote it on the back. Oh. It ended up being a third row seat. And I got to sit and watch this black man play Billy Bigelow and captivate an audience for seven entire minutes alone doing soliloquy. Yeah. And I was like, this is so beautiful. But then I also watched this beautiful man that I respected for his artistry have to essentially abuse Jesse Mueller, this, in comparison on stage, very small white woman. Mm. And I was like, there are things that are not being addressed in that. Mm. There are harmful stereotypes that are not being addressed to that. And that is, honestly, it's unacceptable when these shows are put up for predominantly white audiences in the theater. Mm. And, and you're just, you're, impacting and, 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 and you're, you're, you're displaying this image of, of a stereotype that is so harmful and only shows black men as instinctual and, 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 and these, these almost animals at some points in the show. And there's, there's no care. There's no care. He just kills himself and then it gets all artsy. And I was like, there, there's something, there's something in that and, and, and talking to people in the show it was true colorblind casting colorblind casting is unacceptable it has to be color conscious or it shouldn't happen if you're not thinking about the 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 cultural the the cultural the stereotypical cultural implications of what you're doing on stage then you shouldn't be doing it and things like that that that's what happens when you have these all-white creative teams that's what happens when there's nobody on your team to go hey that's harmful to this group of people because blank. Mm. Period. If, <laughs> if Michael Arden had gone, all right, kids, once on this island with an all-white team, I promise you it wouldn't have been the show that it was. Yeah. If he didn't have a black dramaturg, a black assistant director, a black choreographer, a black music director, an all-black cast that can go, hey, that is not true to my experience or that is harmful, the show would have been half as beautiful as it was. To this day, I count Once on This Island as the most beautiful Broadway show I have ever seen and ever will see because mm-hmm. it was real to my experience. It showed me beautiful Black people on that stage. It showed me people that I knew. When I saw Quentin Earl Darrington, I said, I, I, I know him. 
he's like my father. He's like my uncle. When I saw Alex, I was like, hey, auntie. You know, it felt like these were people that I knew because they are. And at a certain point, they were literally people I knew. It was friends in the show. And I'm like, you're not acting. <laughs> like in some moments, you look at somebody, you're like, you're not acting. That's who you are. And they, there was space to exist. There wasn't, you didn't have to be, you know, in every moment you weren't thinking, what's my intention? What am I doing here? What am I doing here? What am I doing here? No. You were free to exist in a story and tell the story as it is and who, and as fully as you could in who you were in that moment. Because it was conscious. There has to be effort and thought put into direction. That's the job. You can't, you can't put all this, this thought and this effort and this meticulous planning into how your, show is going, how your show is going to come about. And the vision you want to bring about if that vision does not include the color of the people on stage. Hmm. Because at this point, people don't want to hear stories about this old world anymore. We want to hear stories from people that look like the world outside of the theater. If your cast doesn't look like the people that I see before I walk into your show, then I don't want it. Yeah. And that, that has to be something that you think about. And it's not when these creative teams, when they lack a cultural diversity, when there is no inclusion, when there is no equitable space for voices of color, for, for women's voices, for non-binary voices, for transgender voices, for indigenous voices to be heard, when there is no space for these voices, there is no space for any expansion on stage. Our job as artists is to expand hearts and minds on stage and off. And if you cannot expand your own mind before you bring these people into the room, you're wasting your time. I thank you for sharing that. I just learned a lot because I didn't know, you know, I've never thought twice about the difference between colorblind or color conscious. And what you're saying is that we need to invest in more than just people of color in these shows. We need to invest in people of color behind the table. Mm -hmm. For Black people specifically, when they ask you to, you know, what Cynthia Rebo was operating from to do I'm Here eight shows a week. That's deeper than her. That's yeah. generational pain. That is generational trauma. That mm -hmm. has been scientifically, scientifically proven to be passed down through these generations of Black people. All that pain, seeing your families ripped apart in slavery, and all, this, all that pain is still in us. It's generational trauma. She was pulling from a well so much deeper than her, which is why she would shift entire audiences by just the rolling back of her shoulders. <laughs> In just that moment, she could shift an entire audience because she was operating for something that's deeper from her. And you can't ask me the same. You can't, you can't be the people that abuse, that abuse this entire lineage of people and then ask them to pull out that same pain on stage and then not. Wow. You, 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 have, you have to invest fully in these voices. You can't use me for my rhythm and blues and not hear me when I want to speak up. You can't use me as a puppet for your vision, but when I have something to say, I'm silenced or I'm blacklisted. Mm. Like, that's, like that's just, you can't take advantage of groups of people like that. And, and, and still win the Tony. Because these people are pulling from some, something so much deeper than any piece of direction that you could have ever given in that room. And then their voices aren't heard beyond in that moment on stage. So they have to shout on stage. 
they have you have to make them hear you as Cole House because nobody else is hearing you back there. On that note, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this, but I would love to hear your thoughts on this because if white or non-black artists remain silent right now in the space of social injustice, which we've, I've been seeing a lot of people talk about, are they contributing to racism? It's contributing to ignorance, hmm. which, is what's, which is what's most, most prevalent right now. It's easier to generalize when you don't know a group of people. It is. For me, you know, I, I was growing up and you hear people, they're like, oh, she's like, oh, I, I, I would hear in some audition room, she's just like every other white girl. When I'm like, that's my best friend. I know her. She's nothing like this girl over here that I know. She's nothing like this girl over here. Yeah. Because no, nobody's alike. I know that. But when you don't know me, it's easier to generalize. So when you're silent, people can always claim, oh, I didn't know. It's an honest, honest mistake. But if you can speak up and inform people in the right way, because informing people in the right way is not just sharing every Instagram post. You have to research. You have to know. Because some of these people are not giving you the right information on Instagram. They're just not. You have to read. You have to know the sources. You have to know where all this is coming from. You have to know that generational trauma is a thing. Most people don't know that. Most people don't know that I, I carry the stories of my grandfather being chased you know, in downtown Atlanta less than 50 years ago because of the color of his skin. Watching his friends be beaten for just existing on that street corner in that moment. I carry those things with me. I see those things happening. So of course these things live on in here. People don't understand that sometimes I look outside of the window and I see a world that hates me. That's something generational. It's not just me. It's my grandfather's, it's my great-grandfather's. It, it's gonna be you know, these children that are brought into the world during this time. So people have to participate in the education. Mm. Because once, once you know, you're always gonna know. You're always going to know that this is wrong or whether you continue to do that or not, that's up to you. But you're always going to know that this is wrong. If you've been brought up in a family where black people hold no worth to you and it has been explicitly said that black people are less than, how are you to ever know that that's wrong? How are you to ever know to look beyond my skin? How are you ever to know? that beyond these, these time steps and costumes, there is a person. How are you ever to know that? Once you're, once you're shown on, on, a, on a stage, on a Broadway stage, that all Black people can do is suffer, how are you supposed to ever know to write something that they don't have to suffer in? If you look at every show about Black people, something is stolen. It is always about some type of trauma. Every time, every show, Cole House loses Sarah, T-Moon loses Daniel. There's always something about us that is not enough in every show. 
And if that is all you see, how are you ever supposed to see more than that in people? How are you ever supposed to see these artists as the people they are? You can't because you haven't been taught to. This is a question from one of the listeners, but they ask, how do you deal with discussing racism with people who refuse to believe it exists? So I, I spoke about them earlier, but this, this, this place that I did Mulan with, mm-hmm. it was this conservative Christian homeschool co-op. If you've seen the movie Get Out by Jordan Peele, yep. just like that, same thing, yep. same thing, same thing. And, and I, I, one of my best friends, had, I went to his house for the first time, and I'll never forget it. I went to his house, and the garage door opens, and the first thing I see is a Confederate flag. And immediately, my heart started pulsing in my chest. I had just seen Get Out. It, it, it was so fresh to me. And I was like, it's going to happen to me. And my heart was racing. And I remember texting my mom, hey, stay around the corner just in case I need to run. Well-intentioned people. But there was a symbol that showed me the world hated me that close to them. But they loved me. I would spend the night at their house. Me and their son would play video games. Went to their lake house. We, we did all the crazy young boy stuff you do on gold cards, you know, and, and, and riding through the woods on four wheelers and, you know, crashing golf carts into things because you're a boy and you can do that. But there was still a part of me that was like, you hate me. And I felt like I couldn't talk to them. And right now, it's, it's easier to, just, to dismiss people, especially with social media. And social media, your first instinct is to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm writing this because then that's when people start Googling everything that supports you know, their beliefs. Because there's always something you can find that supports every belief that you want to. I could say Tom and Jerry is actually Power Rangers, and I could find an article that says that that is correct. Right now, if I wanted to, you can always find something to back up whatever your point is, whether it's right or wrong. There is always something you can find. And I think the way to do it, well, what I've learned from people like from Quentin Earl Darrington, from Alton Fitzgerald White, from James Monroe Iglehart, all these men that are, you know, well, two of them are Mufasas. There is something to be said about the Mufasas. I have to say it. The Mufasa, every Mufasa I've ever met is the calmest man and the most <laughs> wise man. I'd be like, where are you getting this from? Like, does, get, does Disney give you a handbook of some sort of like Old Testament level wisdom that you must then give to the audience? Every man I've ever met to ever play Mufasa is the most wise man ever. They are so calm. They practice yoga. They, the skin is clear. It's wild. It's like a proactive commercial. So like, it's, it's crazy. It really is crazy. These men are magical. I'm telling you, if you ever get to meet Quentin Earl Darrington, he goes, hello. Oh, oh my, God. my God. You said hello to me. I said, Dad? What? I lost you. The herd. But like, <laughs> these, these men have told me that how you speak to people is what's most important. You have to come at people and you have to lead in love and lead in kindness and listen. 
if you do those things and you know your intentions when you speak, because that's the thing about them. They know what they're saying and they know exactly how to say it, which is why they're so magnetic on stage. Yeah. Which is why when, you know, they go, Simba, you're like, ooh, say it again. With, with, that's when, like, that, that's, that's the thing. It's that intention. It's why Stokes is so good. It's, that's why make them hear you worked in the first place. When there is intention attached to these words, then they really take root in people. So if you're going to have these tough conversations, oh, and stay open. That's one thing Alton reminds me all the time. Because if mm-hmm. I shut you down and there is no longer a channel for us to flow to each other, it can't just be one way because then I'm going to run out. But if we can flow to each other and there is an open channel between my heart and to yours and I lead with the right intentions and I leave in love and kindness and I listen to you, there is no reason why we shouldn't be able to have a conversation about essentially why this group of people should be considered as people. Why these systems have been built to keep these people feeling less than because they were brought to this country to be less than. People of color in this nation have always been abused. Always. There were people here before anybody settled. There were people here before them, and they were forcefully moved out of their homes and killed and infected with diseases because they were seen as less than. So if you can have a conversation and get to the heart of what it is, if I'm speaking to you like that, There's no difference why you wouldn't be able to see why I have a heart Mm. and why I deserve to be seen just as much as you do. So those those are the keys I've always been given and I take them and I go, they're like my Yodas. You're lucky to have those guys as your Yodas. Listen, it's (laughs) biblical. Sometimes I'll be sitting there, I'm like, is this my burning bush? Oh my God. I'll be like, yes, talk to me, Mufasa. My last question for you is simply, do you have any advice for someone who might be listening right now who is, who does identify as a person of color, who is pursuing a career in theater? (laughs) Stay strong. Hmm. It's hard. It's hard. People are going to doubt you. People are going to say you can't make it. People are going to make you feel as though you are less than because of the, the color of your skin, because of your size, because of your height, because maybe you can't hit that A right now, because maybe you can't do that triple in the dance call. People will always find your reason to speak down on you. But you have to operate from a place that is much deeper, from, much deeper than you. You have to operate in service of something bigger than you because then you can't stop. If I was just operating from this well that is Marshall, I'd be out. Hmm. But when, when I knew that there were people who fought and died for my right to sit in a dance call and to just have the opportunity to audition, hmm. when there were people like Sammy Davis Jr. 
like Lena Horne, like Eartha Kitt, like Hinton Battle, when there were people like Aisha Jackson, like Noah Ricketts, like Jelani Aladdin, like James Monroe Igohart, when there were people like Ken Pays, when there were people like Robert Guillaume, when there were people that did all these firsts just so I could have the opportunity to showcase what I do and what I love. There is nowhere I can't run. There is nowhere that I cannot go because I know behind me, there's always that group of people. Mm-hmm. And for them beyond that, I would say, find your community, find your people. I will let you know this now. People of color on Broadway, look out for the young kids of color. Mm-hmm. There are very few people that you can't reach out to and say, hey, what you do? I'm a testament to it. I was 15 years old. 15 years old. There is no reason why I should have had half the access I did to people. I sent an Instagram DM to Derek Davis. He was playing the Phantom of the Opera on tour. And he responded to me and he took the time to invest in who I am as a young Black artist. James is the same. Alton is the same. Quentin O'Darrington is the same. Aisha Jackson is one of my mentors. She's the exact same. They will take care of you, but you have to trust in yourself. And you have to know that you are enough no matter what. Because all those people came before you and they fought for you. All those people in your life that will be paying for these Ladugas, that will be paying for these dance classes, that will be paying for these headshots, that will be paying for these resumes. They see something in you. They believe in you. So the least you could do is believe in yourself. Mm. Period, big dot. Period, and on that note, <laughs> what a way to end this. Um, you know, I just, I, I learned so much today. I really did. And I appreciate you sharing all of that from your deepest of hearts. I know this is a really scary time. I know that it's a really exciting time as well. And I just hope that we all continue to have these conversations um, to continue to fight for change for justice so thank you marshall really i really appreciate it if you've enjoyed today's episode and you found it helpful i would love it if you could screenshot it tag at actor aesthetic and share it to your instagram stories so that i can see who is following along with me there If you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and also hit that subscribe button so that you can join me every single week for a brand new episode of the Actor Aesthetic Podcast. Until then, this is Maggie Barra signing off. It takes a village. I'll see you next week.